With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, it's Wednesday. Heard Tell Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. It is March the 2nd, the year of our Lord 2022. A lot going on in the world. Ukraine's still going on. Had a State of the Union speech last night. Had some voting going on last night. We're going to talk about all of it. Turn down the noise of the news cycle. Get to the stuff that really, really matters. It's what we do here because, Lord, is there a lot of caterwauling going on in media, social media, and news media. We're going to try to get through it. Appreciate your time today. Uh, we're going to talk about that Texas election briefly. We actually had some voting going on last night, kind of got drowned out in a lot of the other things going on, but we're going to come back and address it. Also on the program today, cool story at the end of the show about one of the best basketball players in the world doing something really nice for somebody that was medically told they'd never play basketball, but managed to do it anyway. We always like to bring you those stories on a heavy topic day, and we will do so again today. Uh, John McCumber is going to be our guest. We're going to tee it up in the segment after this one, though, uh, the cybersecurity war that wasn't in Ukraine. We've had a lot of speculation over the years that if we got a major shooting war going, what the cyber warfare side of that would look like. A lot of those uh, assumptions and percolations and things that folks thought would happen haven't happened yet. We're going to talk to John McCumber about it. Our friend, he's been on the program multiple times before. He was doing this stuff before it was even called cybersecurity. Great guest. Uh, he was also a bonafide certified Cold Warrior, uh, did his military service as a military officer in the post-Vietnam era. He's got a lot of thoughts about Russia, the old Cold War, the new hot war. Great guest. Do not miss it today. Uh, but first, we're going to start with the State of the Union. We previewed it. Uh, we knew pretty much what was going to happen, and it did. There was two parts to the speech. There was the Ukraine stuff at the beginning, and then there was the more typical State of the Union uh, domestic policy agenda stuff in the second half of it. Uh, the Ukraine stuff was great. The president did fine. We have a rare moment of national unity where everybody wants to help Ukraine. We're going to fight about how to do that and those sorts of things. But it was great. The Ukrainian ambassador who was sitting uh, with the first lady in the balcony, rousing, uh, standing ovation. Great moment of unity to start the speech. The president delivered on the Ukraine stuff. Good stuff as Americans. Then we had the normal partisanship of the domestic agenda, although I thought the president turned it down for the most part, with the exception of a little section at the end where we got into some things like guns and abortion and things like that. But for the most part, he stuck to uh, a broader theme. Uh, he didn't mention Build Back Better by name, although he mentioned some of the policies. It was obviously a tooled speech to try to reach out a little bit to the broader audience, all well and good. But that wasn't the defining moment of this speech. The defining moment of this speech was when he talked about burn pits. You don't know what a burn pit is. In Iraq and Afghanistan and in other locations during the war on terror, war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, 
the United States government had to do something with all the trash they had. So they would do exactly what it sounds like. You make a big pit, giant landfill kind of thing. You fill it up and you burn it, usually using some form of fuel, usually whatever was on hand, gasoline, JP8, JP5, whatever. This is a problem, of course, because not only is it a mess, it's also burning things that probably shouldn't be burned and then inhaled. There's a lot of data that we don't know about burn pits, but they knew it was bad enough that for years they've put letters into your VA file if you were anywhere near one of these things. I know that because I have one of those letters in my VA file from having been at Balad, LSA Anaconda. This stuff is not like smoke. There was days at Balad where it's like walking around in the thickest fog you've ever known, but it was walking around in this stuff and you're breathing it and it's heavy and it makes you sick and cough on the spot. God knows what kind of damage it does. Now, they don't know the science behind all this, but that's the thing with burn pits. And we've been waiting years, years to get acknowledgement of this from the VA, to get some consideration from Veterans Affairs, to get the government to work on this issue. And we finally get the president of the United States to say it during the State of the Union, the one time of the year where everybody's paying attention to a speech. And look what everybody did with it. We're all reacting to Nancy Pelosi's reaction. Folks on the right are reacting because the president brought up his son again. This idiot congresswoman from Colorado decided that that was the moment that she should get her viral clip going and shouted out about the 13 killed Marines in Afghanistan. And all the usual players in the media immediately slammed it into their narratives. They immediately started talking, how dare they interrupt the president? And others that are against him said, how dare he not talk about Afghanistan? And they talk about Nancy Pelosi's weird reaction that I don't know what was going on there, but it was there and it's a viral clip. People are talking about that. And then people start arguing about the president once again, talking about his son, Bo, who died of cancer. And the president speculating about the cancer. And why is he speculating the cancer? All of that noise, all of that caterwauling, all of those people that decided to once again take something that veterans have been waiting on for years, and they made it all about them. Congressman Bobbert made it all about her. The media made it all about them covering who made it about them. It just was more narrative fodder. It was just more people grabbing it and using it for their own purposes. But we're used to that. People want to say they support veterans, and we love our veterans, and they probably mean it. But boy, we sure are the first fodder people go to when they, and they just want to slap a prefix onto whatever they wanted to do anyway, but try to get a little bit of righteousness to go along with it. Protesting football players? Up. Oh, insults the veterans. We got to protest that. We don't see you protesting the VA, though, when the VA has scandals that are actually killing veterans, like things like weightless and things like incompetence and things like the utter cluster like the VA Choice Program was. We don't see you protesting those things. We don't get headlines about the actual burn pits that may be really doing damage to our veterans for years and years and years. No, we're going to talk about the president. We're going to talk about the president's son. And we're going to talk about this idiot congresswoman who decided to make it all about her. And once again, the lip service of veterans doesn't match the actions of people. People aren't talking about the burn pits and what they do to the veterans today. They're talking about the reactions. They're talking about the social media trends. They're talking about everything they were already talking about. But now they get a slap veteran on it and talk about it some more. Or they get a slap Afghanistan on it and talk about it some more. Do you notice the pattern here? 
people always want to talk about what they want to talk about. They just take what's going on right now and make that the excuse to continue to talk about what they wanted to talk about. People that wanted to attack the president wanted to attack Nancy Pelosi. People that want to support the president. People that want to support Lauren Bobbert. People that want to support whatever. And in the meantime, after waiting years and years and years to get some public acknowledgement about these burn pits and what they've done to veterans, real life breathing veterans that everybody says they care so much about, we're talking about all that nonsense. It's a great microcosm for everything wrong with our government, our media, and our politics. We just can't turn it off for one dang minute to get to one issue that everybody should agree on because we're too busy doing what we want to do and making it all about us. Lauren Bobbert made it about her. The news media made it about them. The online commentators made it about them. Nancy Pelosi, unwittingly or not, managed to make it about her reaction. President Biden made it about his son and his personal pain, which is fine. That's his right to do so. I don't know if it had anything to do with Bo's death or not, but he has a right to explore that with the VA to find out whether it did or not. Keep your eye on the ball, folks. Don't say you care about the veterans or any other people group in America if all it is is a prefix to whatever you wanted to talk about anyway, because then you don't really care about them other than using them as a prop, which all too often veterans are and other people groups are. And everybody in America deserves a whole lot better than that from everybody else. More hotel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Oh, welcome back to Hurtel. I want to tee up what we're going to talk about with our guest, John McCumber, today. Uh, we love John. Glad to have him back on the program. He was a cybersecurity expert. He was doing it before it was even called cybersecurity, back when it was just information security, and then computer things were still newfangled devices that everybody was trying to figure out what they do. He knows a lot about this stuff, and we love to talk about him about these issues. But uh, this piece from the Washington Post uh, is part of the reason we want to talk to him, because people online and on social media I've been talking about cyber warfare, and this is the first real big uh, shooting war. We have always been told that that would involve a lot of cyber warfare, and we just haven't seen it in, the U- in Ukraine versus Russia. It seems kind of odd almost. So people were a little confused about it, but Washington Post, uh, Joseph Mean and Craig Timberg are the authors of this piece, but quote from the Washington Post, quote, for more than a decade, military commanders and outside experts have laid out blueprints on how cyber war would unfold. Military and civilian networks would be knocked offline. Cutting edge software would sabotage power plants and whole populations would be unable to get money for gas or refrigerated food. But while Russia's invasion of Ukraine has spawned all manner of cyber attacks and defenses, few are playing out the way the experts thought they would. As of Monday, five days after the tanks moved into Ukraine, the Internet and other key Ukrainian infrastructures were still functioning. The outgunned Ukrainian military was still coordinating effectively, and Russia's vaunted disinformation capabilities were failing to persuade Ukrainians that resistance is futile. Quote, we imagine this orchestrated unleashing of violence in cyberspace, this ballet of attacks striking Ukraine in waves, and instead we just have a brawl. And not even a very consequential brawl, just a brawl, said Jason Healy, a former White House staffer for Infrastructure Protection and Intelligence Officer, who's now a research scholar on cyber conflict at Columbia University. A vastly large, more powerful military, one especially feared for its cyber military prowess, has allowed Ukrainians almost unfettered access to the Internet. 
This has helped get weapons to citizens and her harness social media to rally global political support through direct emotional appeals backed by stirring visuals. It's certainly not what anyone predicted, said Dmitry Alperovich. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. A longtime cybersecurity executive and U.S. government advisor who heads Silverado Policy Accelerator. UK, Ukraine's core cyber defense has done better than expected because it focused on the issues after Russian hackers briefly knocked out power to swaths of the country in 2015 and 2016, said David Cohen, excuse me, a veteran cybersecurity venture capitalist and corporate director, and because it has helped from American and European experts. Quote, I would have thought that by now Russia would have disabled a lot more infrastructure around communications, power, and water, Cohen said. If Russia were attacking the U.S., there would be more cyber damage, and the absence of major disruptions predicted by cyber war doctrine has allowed Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky to deliver propaganda coups with little more than a smartphone and a data link. Images of civilian casualties, the brutal shelling of cities, and also some Russian losses have undermined the nation's claim of a limited and humane, quote, special military operation. We've covered in detail how that's a lie. A viral audio clip of Ukrainian soldiers on a tiny island telling a Russian warship to go F yourself has become a defining moment of natural resistance. This is all possible because of the Internet and technology. Quote, it's become a global participatory thing. Everybody thinks they're part of it, said Douglas Mattery, director of Internet analysis for Kinnick, which tracks global data flow. It would be a lot harder to do all that. If there was a blackout, Ukraine has not escaped unscathed, and some experts warn that cyber attacks or internet outages could grow as Russia's invasion intensifies in the face of unexpectedly stout resistance. Russia or its allies have already deployed software to wipe out data from some Ukrainian computers, including border control offices, but such interruptions are not nearly as widespread as in past attacks, such as NotPieta, which was the fake ransomware attributed to the Russian government, causing billions of dollars of damage, most of it in Ukraine. A lot of questions about why the cyber warfare that we thought would happen didn't happen. In fact, one of the first things I thought of on the starting hours of the invasion was, okay, any minute the lights are going to go out. We remember other military operations, like when we took Iraq, first thing we did was knock out the power. We knocked out the phones, things like this. And that didn't happen in Ukraine. So either they didn't do it or they tried and failed or they weren't really capable of it. This raises a whole lot of questions because we thought that the Russians were going to be really good at cyber warfare. I've got a few theories on it, but I'm going to save them because I'm going to bring them up with John McCumber. He's the expert on this. We're going to ask him. We're going to listen to his answers. This is what we do on Herd Tell. We get knowledgeable guests. We ask them directly, and then we talk about it. We're going to do it on Herd Tell right now. Right after this, John McCumber, cybersecurity, cyber warfare, Ukraine. He's also a cold warrior. Uh, from back in the post-Vietnam era. We'll get his thoughts, broadly speaking, on the conflict in Ukraine, on the Russian conflict, and cybersecurity questions that need answers when Hertel comes back right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell Show. Been a while since we've had him. He's had some life stuff going on. Thrilled to have him back. Our buddy, John McCumber, cybersecurity expert, semi-retired down at Del Voca Vista or whatever. How you say it now? How's yeah, the Seinfeld joke? Vista, the old Seinfeld joke. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we made the move. So just yeah. embraced retirement. He's enjoying Florida, but uh, he's got some work to do for us today, buddy. Appreciate your time. Um, I want to start here, though, because I want to do some big picture stuff, and then we'll talk about the cybersecurity stuff, because a lot of people have been freaking out about that, and we want to kind of turn the noise down on that. 
But I, I want to get your perspective as somebody who's been there, done that. You are a certified Cold Warrior. Um, you did your military service. Obviously, you grew up during the Cold War, and then your yeah. military service was the post-Vietnam era, we call it now, right after Vietnam into the 80s and the 90s. You were there for the military rebuild of the U.S. military. How's this been landing with you? Because you're of that generation where y'all just kind of grew up assuming at some point we were going to deal with Russia and it was going to come to blows. Some of that probably died off as time went on, but now here it is and we're dealing with them. How's the events of the last week or so in Ukraine kind of landed with you? Well, this is, of course, not surprising in many ways, but it's also surprising. In fact, when you mentioned dealing with Russia, uh, that Cold War experience for me wasn't Russia. It was the Soviet Union. That was the big picture back then. So you had uh, a large landmass that was controlled from Moscow. And that landmass consisted of people that spoke 127 different languages, the people from different cultures. So when people thought of Russia, and I know, you know, from my youth and then, you know, my service in the military, uh, what we were thinking of was this, the bear, you know, the big giant uh, Russian uh, conglomerate, which was the Soviet Union. Uh, and then that just kind of fell apart. And, 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 and it's not surprising to see that. I mean, it's actually what's surprising how long the, the Russians were able to keep that Soviet Union together uh, in the post-World War II environment, simply because they were trying to translate. You know, every government edict had to be translated into dozens and dozens of languages, had to try to control different cultures. And so when we thought of Russia, it was this Russia in, 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 a, in a very big uh, picture. And it talked about Russia, but again, what, what, what the reality was is we were looking at the Soviet Union and seeing, uh, a, and a lot of the perception is that this is a homogeneous group of people, uh, that they all sat around hated on the United States, they did it you know, every day, and that they were a powerful and massive entity. Uh, Russia today is a very, very different place and a very different country talking to John McCumber. I, I, it's interesting you bring that up because part of what we're seeing now is kind of a realignment of the old Soviet, they called them the satellite states, but really yeah. they were just occupied territories. Yeah. Obviously, Ukraine was one of the ones and we're dealing with that directly. But look at the, peop the powers in Europe that have really stepped up now. Poland, um, Finland has a lot of history going back to World War II where they stood the Soviets up out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Um, the, the Balkan states are involved. Uh, Estonia, Lithuania, which have just been superstars of the open markets and freedom of the last 10, 15 years. They're worried about it. When you're talking about that old Soviet system, it's a very stark contrast how those countries are doing now compared to how they're doing then. I got to think somebody like Vladimir Putin, who wants the old Soviet empire even more than the old Soviet Union, that's just got to eat at him and his whole worldview, doesn't it? It, it has changed, and I don't know if Putin has changed. I, I can't speak for what he's thinking. Uh, I'm, I'm baffled while, why he uh, would take on this, uh, uh, this military action. But at the same time, it's a different world out there. Like you say, uh, once these men and women were, were freed from that Soviet satellite system, uh, all the natural genius, creativity, and skills of these people uh, blossomed. And you saw what happened. Uh, Estonia, I, I had the privilege of traveling through the Czech Republic uh, only a couple of years ago and getting a chance to see there are still remnants of, of the old Soviet system everywhere you look, except for the vibrancy, the market, and the, and the focus on this new 
new era that was coming into being ushered in a lot of it by uh, by information technology and the ability for them to have a worldwide audience. And so you've really seen a significant change and you know, he's trying to get the band back together. It's, uh, it's going to be hard to get that genie back in that bottle. And you mentioned the, the, um, the cyber part of this, the intelligence part of this, the technology this is a technology story because everything we we know the tactics and the ground war and the military side. I don't think anybody expected Ukraine to win the propaganda war from day one and maintain that win. I don't think people uh, expected the information flow to be as good as it's been. Are are you surprised by that, or did you expect it that this really was going to be an information war on top of the shooting war, and the information war has been vivid? And it's been very apparent who's winning it and who's not. Well, let's talk about that. I know that's what we wanted to talk about today. And I get some really interesting observations on that. Please. Uh, one of the, the information warfare, some of the information warfare principles are centered around winning that uh, information war. And around that, again, you, know, you talk about uh, going into a, a military uh you know, or a, a kinetic environment where you're actually going in, sending in the tanks, sending in the troops. One of the principles uh, for most information warfare is you shut down that enemy's op- ability to be able to conduct information operations, propaganda. And again, I, it's not a value judgment. When I say propaganda, good, bad, or indifferent, whether it's it's true factual information you're getting out to the world or you're curating that information some way. So what you've seen here is not what I think is really telling about this environment, what's happened in Ukraine is what's not happening. Uh, you know, you know, with, uh, you know, again, you and I both have an Air Force background and, you know, from an Air Force perspective for air, airborne superiority, that's one of the first things we do in a kinetic engagement. First thing we do is send in the weasels and they suppress everything. They suppress anti-aircraft, they suppress command and control, they suppress communications. Uh, so an information warfare principle that's carried over from, I mean, goes back centuries, uh, but, you know, if you look at one of these principles is to shut down that environment, that did not happen. So when you look at a country like Russia, you hear about their uh, you know, daunting information warfare uh, and management propaganda capabilities. What's not happening uh, is the fact that, again, whether they thought they were just going to walk in and, and just take over uh, in Ukraine, whether they didn't want to destroy or impact assets they thought they'd need to uh, be able to reconstitute for their own uses. I don't know. Uh, but I do know what's interesting is what's not happening. Is the Ukrainians better than we thought, or is the Russians worse than we thought, or is it a combination of the two? <laughs> you know, and from all I can tell, it's a combination of the two. Uh, you know, like I say, why Putin and the forces did not go in and suppress, uh, you know, Again, let's just use this term uh, globally. We'll just say the, the internet, uh, their ability to communicate, uh, their ability to get out and get information out to the, the world. Uh, and again, what surprises me is what's not happened. Those are principles of information warfare that are used on a, on a recurring basis. It's everybody's playbook, and it, it's just not happening here. What you're seeing uh, to quote a good friend of mine, Jason Healy, says what you're not seeing is information warfare, you're seeing a brawl. Yeah, talking to John McCumber, cybersecurity expert, former military officer on top of that, old Cold War guy, explaining the new Cold War to us that's pretty hot in Ukraine right now. 
John, let me ask it to you this way. We have been told for years and years and years by uh, folks, cybersecurity experts, your brethren in that field, that the next major shooting war we were going to see was going to be uh, hand in hand and probably preemptive by massive cyber warfare. There would be infrastructure attacks. There would be massive grid attacks. You just mentioned it. We didn't see any of that. Um, is this a unique thing or was that kind of overblown? How do you read that? Because we sure didn't see any of it here. We sure didn't. And again, that's what surprises me and, and has been the biggest uh, surprise going into this uh, this scenario with Ukraine is that it didn't happen. Uh, one of the challenges that Russia brings, and of course we have not a dissimilar challenge. Let me talk about what that is. The, the, the Russians have a groups of, for lack of a better term, uh, let's say the word hackers. We have uh, people that that operate in what we would call the information sphere in a way that they are combatants. And again, I don't like to overstate the martial terminology here because IT is certainly not the battlefield and people are not dying from bullets and bombs. But it's important to understand that the Russians, you know, aside from their own information warfare capabilities, have a tacit uh, management of uh, a rather wide variety of uh, disparate groups of, of disaffected people that are involved and that they you know, tacitly uh, approve of their actions, in, including certain ransomware groups that have been operating over the last five years. So you see the Russians will allow this to happen. And they'll, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much control and, and I'm not in that world anymore. So I can't uh, can't even share with you some special intelligence that I have because I don't. Uh, but it, it the jury's out on just about how much control they have over these groups where they can maintain plausible deniability. They have the ability to sit there and let these people wreak havoc uh, in the infrastructure and with communications all the while claiming that, well, these are these are outside forces. These are not these are not government sponsored, paid, or managed assets. We have something similar in the West. We call it anonymous, and that's one of the groups that we talk about having here. And you've seen that they've been active uh, out there and in, in attacking websites, uh, communications, and, and other capabilities on a very small scale right now. Uh, and again, they're not working at the behest of the United States government. Uh, they are not working uh, within a structure of information warfare operations. Yet, uh, you know, how much we're going to uh, sit back, watch this happen, or try to control that? And again, it's going to be interesting as things unfold. Yeah, we're talking to John McCumber. He's an old cybersecurity guy, uh, former military officer. We're going to continue to talk to him. I've got a theory on some of that. I'm going to run it by John, see what he thinks. We're going to talk more about Ukraine, Russia, cybersecurity, some of the freak out in the headlines and on social media. He's going to help us turn down the noise on that. More with John McCumber on Tell right after that. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking to my good friend, John McCumber. I appreciate his time greatly. All right, I got a theory for you. Right. We are seeing diplomatically something really interesting happen with Russia. People who have been Putin allies, Putin supporters, all of a sudden they're not backing him on this invasion. Uh, even places like Kazakhstan, which has practically almost become a satellite state again, they even backed off of him. Uh, now Levinchenko in Belarus is starting to wobble a little bit because he just figured out that if Putin goes down, he's got nothing. Um, is it possible 
that we overblew the Russians' uh, propaganda and cybersecurity ability because they were relying on these third-party wink-wink, nudge-nudge people that they didn't really control. And some of those folks just aren't going to independently help them out here, and it's just exposing that their network was really more other people that they were using by proxy than they themselves having expertise. You know, this is a great point, and, and you bring up exactly what one of the major problems are in this environment. Yeah, the good news is you have these third-party operators that you can claim, you know, plausible deniability, you can separate yourself from, they're not under government control. That's the good news. Guess what the bad news is? They're not under government control, and they give you plausible deniability. Uh, the challenge that the Russians have with this, again, goes back to those opening remarks that I made. These third-party groups consist of Russians. Guess who's also in those third-party groups? Ukrainians, Chechens, uh, you know, you, uh, Estonians. You know, you've got people across uh, Eastern Europe and across uh, you know, very uh, Western Asia that are that are involved with these groups that may not share Putin's uh, aggressive uh, stance toward Ukraine. And you got to really uh, understand that these groups are not to be synonymous with Russian policy or uh, Russian aggression. Yeah, and we probably shouldn't assume that they're friends of ours just because they're enemies of Russia right this second. Uh, yeah. Let's go. Let's go through a few things that have been floating around online because people have kind of been freaking out. Uh, do you think there's any way that Russia uh, retaliates on America and or the wider rest with cybersecurity attacks? This is something that's been talked about a lot. Uh, it's been mentioned, especially as a proportional response to sanctions, that they would try cyber warfare. I'm just kind of wondering, like, if they can't even get it right against the Ukrainians, they're a little busy right now. Are they really going to be able to focus on something against the states or against Europe or whoever the case may be? Do you think obviously it's a valid concern because it could happen? But is it something that we should really be worried about right this second? We've had experience over the last decade uh, since NotPetya and other kinds of attacks that were done against infrastructure resources to be able to examine our uh, critical infrastructure. And if you go to the DHS website, read about those 16 critical infrastructures, you know, communications, uh, you know, water, electricity, you, you go and look at those. We've had a decade to look at those vulnerabilities in there and come up with plans in order to be able to defend against these types of international attacks. So I'm not saying we're perfect at that or we've got it all figured out because I don't think that's the case. What you do see, though, is that you see that the Russians... Uh, again, they either are, are holding their cards to their chest, at which maybe, again, that's that's a level of chess that uh, that maybe we're giving Putin too much credit for. Uh, but it is possible that they're just uh, holding their fire with their capabilities. Some of the things that we talk about are called burning zero days. So you have some really uh, a critical vulnerability that can impact a broad section of infrastructure, whether that's the internet, whether that's gas distribution, electricity, whatever. And once you put that out in public, you, you know, once you once you pull the trigger on that weapon, uh, that's out there now. Not saying it, it could be very effective, but you get don't get to use that again. So what we're seeing here is either Putin and and his uh, leadership is is very very clever, or they simply just don't uh, and didn't perceive that they needed to be able to deploy these uh, unique capabilities at this time. I don't know the answer to that. Um, one theory I was reading a little bit about was 
um, they were talking about they have the ability to do a lot of damage to infrastructures. Uh, I'm talking about the cybersecurity infrastructures, computer grids, things like this. But one of the other problems with that is, is they said uh, the state actors would be very low to do that because once you do that, you've also killed all your intelligence gathering capability at the same time. And when they rebuild the new intelligence capability that you just destroyed, now you're starting from zero trying to gather intelligence because this is a multi-layered thing. Talk about that nuance because these things don't happen in a vacuum. We write about them in you know the Washington Post or wherever in a vacuum, but that's not how this works in the real life because information cybersecurity stuff that's two-way flow in a lot of these cases even if they can take it down is there instances like that where they don't want to take it down because now you just lost an asset for yourself as well absolutely i mean these you can go back in history uh and and that's why I'm, i i just love being a student of history and you go back and see these same concerns being addressed for many, you know, for, for millennia, you know, the, the information warfare and the use of these tools is nothing new. Uh, we watched uh, Churchill watch uh, his fellow Britons die uh, that he could have prevented the death, knowing that if he prevented uh, these attacks and everything else, we were telling the Nazis exactly what we knew about their communications and telecommunication systems. And, and he had to make that call. He had to sit there and watch men and women uh, of his country, fellow countrymen, die in an attack that he could have prevented because he didn't want to disclose what their capabilities were at that time. And that's what, you know, again, are we seeing that here? I'm not sure. Uh, I really don't know. Uh, I don't know what's going on with uh, Putin and the leadership in this regard, but it is something to consider. As, as I said earlier, once you play that card, you can't bring it back. You know, it's always going to be something that uh, that's on the table now and people are going to quickly develop their defenses. One people, one thing people kept bringing up, though, was they want to bring up something like the colonial pipeline thing, the malware stuff. It, that seems to me almost to be unrelated, although I know maybe there was some Russian influence behind it because of those disparate groups we call it. But to me, those seem like two those that doesn't really seem to be related with what we're dealing with here in Ukraine, though, is it because it's a different structural way that they go about their business with this cybersecurity stuff, isn't it? Well, one of the things that I found real helpful over the years that I would uh, did this work for the Pentagon and I would map these out for our leadership at, at, in the U.S., when we talk about these various threats and, and, and assets that could be attacked, when you talk about a threat, you have to break down the threat into four components, agent, intent, target, and mechanism. So what happens is there's a variety of mechanisms that can be used. These are also referred to as vulnerabilities in these various systems. But to, in order to be effective, effectively understand who's going to use them and for what purpose, because again, can you use a vulnerability that are used for, say, a ransomware attack? Uh, can you use that for an information warfare attack on a nation state? Sure you can. Uh, but you have to understand the agent who's, who's initiating that uh, attack, intent, what are they trying to do, what's the target of, of using this, and what mechanism are they going to use. That's going to help you more effectively understand how these uh, kind of situations evolve and how they deploy uh, attacks against various vulnerabilities. And these vulnerabilities we've seen, like you say, we, we talk about how they've, uh, we've seen these vulnerabilities and, and how they uh, are, have been used in the past against commercial operators, how they're used for ransomware against medical facilities. Can I use those for nation state warfare? 
On that line of thought, though, I'm wondering, you used to teach this stuff. Let's say you're doing a lecture at uh, George Washington or somewhere on what's happening in Ukraine and Russia in hindsight. Is it going to become a uh, doctrine for states and militaries now? Like we've said, you know, you, you never attack with infantry until you add air cover, right? Which the Russians have screwed that up too, but that's another matter for another day. Is it just going to be after what we've seen in Ukraine now, doctrine of you cannot have a land warfare if you do not have cyber control of the cyber realm now? Because we are watching the Ukrainians in real time affect a military campaign where they are grossly outnumbered just by staying online. That's pretty yeah. remarkable change in, in how warfare is conducted, isn't it? I think it's it, it's incredible. And again, it goes back to something I keep saying about this environment. It it it's it's just amazing what's not happening. I mean, you know, it, it, many civil war battles were preceded by them cutting, you know, uh, crawling up telephone poles or telegraph poles and cutting the telegraph wires uh, and, and being able to shut down communications at, at Little Big Top during the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, they cleared off the top of a mountain so they can run up signal flags on top of the mountain to communicate privately among uh, among the Union needs forces that were there at the time. So you these these situations are, are analogous to what's happened throughout history. So saying cyberspace is some kind of a new or special or sexy and exciting environment is is really just an extension of what's gone on in warfare for millennia. So understanding how we handle the communications, how we understand how we allow or not allow our, our, uh, our enemies to be able to use their infrastructure and environment. What I say, what's astounding what's happening in Ukraine is what's not happening. Yeah, talking to John McCumber. Uh, let's go back to where we started with the old Cold War. I, my concern is no matter what happens because of what Putin has done here, whatever comes next is going to be unstable and not good. Uh, even if the Ukrainians hold them off, that, that destabilizes Russia, that destabilizes probably Belarus, a lot of other places. Use your Cold War experience for a minute and and talk about these things. How should we as Americans prepare for what comes next in this? We're not going to, unless something escalates, we won't be committing troops, but clearly things have changed and we need to make a plan going forward. What would you recommend? There's a long list. And, you know, in fact, somebody on, uh, you know, you and I have a, a common Twitter environment, social media, and somebody asked me, well, what do you think the president should be doing right now uh, in this environment, you know, rather than, you know, watching and doing whatever they're doing right now? And I looked at this destabilization, some of the challenges here. And, and the first thing that, that I would do is start working on energy independence for the United States first and then supporting Europe in that regard, as, as well as near, uh, you know, near Eastern countries over there. Uh, Russia has a big energy, uh, it's a big energy producer and they distribute all over Europe. So what you're seeing is a response from NATO and others is a recognition of the fact that they're relying on Russia for a lot of their energy, uh, oil and gas production and distribution. Uh, so one of the things that we need to do as a country is to make sure we're energy independent. What do we need to do that? Well, we need to do things like make sure we have pipelines. We need to make sure uh, that we have um, harvesting natural gas uh, from our own resources as best we can. We're able to manage those. Uh, we're able to rebuild our nuclear program, start building nuclear plants. You know, look what's happened in Germany. They cancel their nuclear program. And I guess they're going to try to run things with windmills and, and you know, and uh, 
and solar panels. But of course, a lot of a lot of Germany is in a northern climate. They don't have uh, really. It's not like Southern California where they can generate wind and, and solar power to the degree they need. Uh, and yet, so they've got a stale uh, nuclear program. So talking about energy independent, we have to talk about nuclear. We have to talk about energy production here in the United States as well and energy independence. That's going to change the the calculus in dealing with a renewed Russia aggression and dealing with them as they work within that. And, and I know it sounds kind of, you know, displaced. It sounds like something far away, but by God, that's going to make a big difference in how we can deal with an, a, uh, uh, an empowered or aggressive Russia. Yeah. John McCumber, great stuff. The overall theme here though, is these are new spins on very, very old human issues. And uh, I always appreciate your insight and your wisdom, my friend. Let folks know where you're at on social media. You've kind of semi-stepped back, but now you're getting settled in. You're dipping your toe back in, and we appreciate your opinions. Let folks know where they can find all those great food takes you put out since you are a founding member of Twitter Supper Club in good standing, my friend. <laughs> and, it, and it's funny. I got to tell you a quick story about that. So uh, I had a chance to meet one of our mutual Twitter friends here at the Supper Club, and uh, and and this brilliant and highly accomplished woman and her husband came to my house where I had a chance to finally show my cooking skills, and it, it was an absolute and utter disaster. So, uh, we, <laughs> so but I tell you what, I, I'm at uh, John McCumber at John McCumber is just my name uh, on Twitter. Uh, where I live. I certainly get the privilege of writing for uh, Ordinary Times. I got another one coming out on phase two of this life decision I made. So I'm just sharing with other people how I'm uh, kind of struggling along at this phase of my career. And then uh, have an opportunity to uh, talk with you on occasion and have a privilege of being on Hurtel. Yep. And uh, a lot of people writing about the great resignation. John supercharged his and took off. Uh, so we can talk more about that in the future. John right. McCumber, uh, we'll get you back in the rotation now that you're settled in, my friend. Always good talking to you and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Andrew. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hard to Tell. Uh, we've been covering elections this year because it is the midterm election year. Uh, we go and talk to folks, try to get you the best information we possibly can. A lot of people talking about the State of the Union, including us. Uh, but there was some voting last night, deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, Texas had their primary last night. No real big surprises here. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott easily uh, took care of his primary challengers. He will be up for re-election as expected. Beto O'Rourke, uh, you remember him from his senatorial run at Ted Cruz a while back and his presidential campaign in 2020. He won the Democratic nomination for Texas governor, setting up the expected match between the two of them. Uh, the question probably is, can Beto get it to single digits, especially in a year that's going to run against Democrats? We'll see how that race shapes up. Also, interesting note to watch uh, in the Texas attorney general race, Ken Paxton, who has all kinds of issues, including an outstanding indictment from out of Austin. But that's another story for another day. Uh, he's going to go to a runoff. He did not clear the 50 percent he needed. Uh, and a familiar name in Texas and national politics will be his opponent, George P. Bush. Now, that's Jeb's son. Uh, George P. Bush made the runoff. And he will be running against Ken Paxton for AG. Kind of the story there from our friends at Elections Daily and uh, Decision Desk HQ. 
Louis Gomart, uh, crazy Louis Gomart, as we like to call him because the man has lost his marbles. He ran in this race and he probably pulled just enough support from Kim Paxton's base, the uh, more hardcore right, the more Trumpian right, if you will, to keep him under 50% and send him off to the runoff. Um, but George P. Bush is being projected as the one who will be in that runoff against him. So Texas dynasty against a highly problematic figure. We'll have to see what comes of that. We'll probably get one of our election daily friends on to talk about this race in the forthcoming days. But just to let you know, a little bit of election went uh, deep in the heart of Texas. So Paxton uh, is going to be up against a Bush. That ought to be fun. And Governor Abbott and Beto O'Rourke, which is something that's going to get a lot of national attention, going to get a whole lot of money. We'll see what happens, see if Beto can make a race of it. More hotel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hotel. You know, we always like to end on a good note or an uplifting note. This is a fun one. Uh, Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors, uh, one of the best basketball players on the planet, transformational player, the way he plays the game. But he's also well known for his charitable giving, for his family life. He's an all-around good guy. This is a great story. Uh, Stephen Curry has frequently spoken about being a role model. This is from the mercurynews.com. Last week when the Warriors were in Portland, Curry met with Matthew Spellman, an Oregon high schooler who overcame cerebral palsy to become a varsity basketball player. During the All-Star break, the Oregonian wrote about Spellman's path to making the varsity team as he all overcame. Born three months premature with brain damage that led doctors to tell his parents he'd never be able to walk. In the story, Spielman said he had been a big fan of Curry since the Warriors drafted him in 2009. Curry and the Warriors saw the story and made plans to give Spellman VIP treatment at Thursday's game between the Warriors and the Trailblazers. Spellman watched as Curry's renowned pregame warm-up drills from a seat on the baseline and then met with Curry following the game. There's pictures of this. It's really uh, cool. There's actually a little video package involved also at uh, mercurynews.com. After dropping 18 points and 14 assists in the Warriors' 132-95 win, Curry chatted with Spielman and signed multiple autographs for him and his family. Spielman's mom, Cheryl, told Curry, you have made his life. It was awesome, Spellman told him. I can't believe I got to meet Steph. Curry knows he has fans all over the world who grew up idolizing him, and it's his responsibility he takes seriously. After being MVP of the All-Star Game last Sunday, Curry went on NBA TV's postgame show and was asked by Isaiah Thomas about being the quote-unquote face of the league. Curry answered it this way. Listen to this quote. It's how you impact the next generation of basketball players, Curry said. How basketball has much further reach outside of the 94 feet in terms of impacting communities, giving back, changing narratives in society, all those types of things. If I can be a representative of that, nobody's perfect, but I can be as close to the full package in terms of taking advantage and leveraging all of those sames for some amazing change and good things, then I'm going to keep doing it. Basketball is such a vehicle for amazing things. It changed my life, and I want to keep doubling down on that and honoring that position. So good on Stephen Curry. What a story of overcoming for a young man to be premature, to be told he's never going to walk, to become a basketball player. Uh, cerebral palsy, of course, is a, a very, very difficult disease. Good on this young man. Good on all these folks. Great story to end the day where we had to talk about some emotional and tough stuff. But that's what we do here. We turn down the noise of the news cycle. We don't duck the hard stuff. We talk about what matters. And it's all because of you for listening, for watching on the YouTube channel, listening on all the podcasting platforms. We sure appreciate it. And that'll do it for Herd Tell today. 
So we always end it by telling you to please subscribe and leave comments and leave ratings and to reach out to us. Uh, you can do it on the email, hertelshow at gmail or at hertelshow on the Twitter if you'd rather do it that way. You can even leave comments. We've done segments off of YouTube comments before. Love to hear from you. Love to participate because if you're not listening, we don't have anybody to talk to. It's a partnership. and We sure appreciate you. Uh, we see the numbers. We know you're out there and we appreciate you giving us week over week growth every week since we started doing this program. It's very humbling. It's good to know that folks out there want to hear good information, want to discuss issues in a grown folk way, not just caterwaul at each other. It gives us a little bit of hope. It's a better way to do things. Sure beats just yelling at the TV. Get involved. And the way we stay involved is by doing things like Herd Tell. And we appreciate you letting us do it. So until we come back and do it again tomorrow, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed, and we will talk to you again tomorrow on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Source Lament.